Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today we're going to explore the contribution that archaeology can and does make to our knowledge of Canadian history. When I was a young boy, I knew I wanted to work in history when I grew up, but I was torn between wanting to be an archaeologist or a historian. Which was the better way to understand the past, through the physical evidence or through documentary evidence? I thought that was the question. But in recent years, I've seen how the two disciplines mutually benefit each other. And in cases where there's no documentary evidence, the extent to which we rely on archaeology to reconstruct past lives and civilizations. Today, we are going to talk about archaeology and its relationship with documentary history. Our guest is Matt Betts. He is the curator of Eastern Archaeology at the Canadian Museum of History and an adjunct professor of anthropology at the University of New Brunswick. His book, Placemaking in the Pretty Harbour, The Archaeology of Port Jolie, Nova Scotia, was published by the University of Ottawa Press in 2019. In it, he reconstructs the history of the Mi'kmaq of Nova Scotia based on the artifacts found in a unique harbour on the south shore of Nova Scotia. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. As you know, the Champlain Society is dedicated to the preservation of the documentary history of Canada. Today, you're our witness to history. So take us back to the time before Europeans settled North America and tell us what a day in the life of a Mi'kmaq community in Nova Scotia was like. What we learned in Port Jolly allows us to reconstruct uh, the daily life um, over about 1,500 years. So it changed over time. But if I had to generalize, uh, the day would be centered around a very close relationship with the ecosystem, especially the marine ecosystem. Um, uh, a large portion of the people would be uh, spending their days collecting softshell clams. That's Maya Arenaria in the, the coastal waters. Um, uh, they would collect the clams probably mostly women and children and elderly. They would bring them back to a, a main site and process these and spend a lot of time removing the meat from the clams and uh, smoking them uh, for later preservation and storage. And so this was a, a large operation involving many people. And you can think of many families coming together in the summer months to process these clams and store them for winter storage. So the women, children, and elderly would be doing this. And while they were doing that, the men would be out fishing, uh, probably taking a lot of codfish uh, and other ground fish and hunting deer and caribou um, and living in relatively small uh, villages uh, composed of birch bark wigwams. Um, but in the summer months, probably very many families coming together uh, to share in the labor. And then in the winter, dispersing um, some, but some living in the in the Port Jolly Harbor itself over winter. Um, it was such an idyllic spot um, and still collecting clams in the winter months. Um, and so highly attuned to the ecosystem, um, but also sort of making their own impact on the place, uh, making it special. And we can talk about that a little bit later. Now, describe what this place, that is Port Jolly, really was and is, what the Mi'kmaq called it, and why 
it is so significant from a historical perspective. Uh, well, the Mi'kmaq called it Emsik. Uh, it was later when Champlain arrived in 1604, uh, the namesake of your society, he renamed the harbor Port Jolie, meaning pretty harbor. But Emsik is a word that means blown along by the wind or blown blown along in the wind and refers to the gentle breezes that still sort of t- uh, tickle your skin in the harbor today. Um it's special because of the softshell clams that are there, uh, but not only the softshell clams, um, the harbor attracts large numbers of uh, aquatic birds um, and is a sort of natural migration route for the caribou that were there in the past and white-tailed deer, uh, uh, as well as moose and, and numerous other fur bearers. It really was a kind of an ecological node, uh, and the Mi'kmaq made it into a, a special place for them um, through their exploitation of these resources. Uh, and we have evidence that they, they really did sort of transform the landscape, uh, um, both sort of spiritually uh, and physically, and really made these sites their own and continue to come back to the, to the location year after year after year for over 1,500 years. Now, I, I once lived many decades ago in Washington, D.C., uh, and was familiar with Chesapeake Bay, and we had soft shell crab but what's a soft shell clam oh it's a it's a marine mollusk um it's one of the most delicious species from my perspective um they're a big meaty clam um that are particularly easy to open because of their soft shells uh and they um in the South Shore of Nova Scotia, uh, they're particularly abundant. So any sort of uh, shallow freshwater bay or harbor has an abundance of clams. But Port Jolie had a, a, a multitude of these beaches um, and uh, was really pro- probably the most productive location uh, on the South Shore of Nova Scotia throughout much of the late Holocene, that is prior to the arrival of Europeans. Uh, it's less productive today. That's due to sea level rise. Things have changed, but you can still get delicious freshwater clams there today. Uh, we know that they were taking large numbers of softshell clams and some of the uh, refuse heaps, we call them shell bins because they're cremos of so many clam shells in them, um, can be up to a meter deep. And these are the largest shell bins known uh, in Nova Scotia and throughout the maritime provinces. Um, and uh, we know by comparing the meat in the shells compared to the animal bones we're finding in the middens that as much as 90% or even more of the meat that they're eating is from these softshell clams. And so they're really a staple resource um, and, you know, uh, once they're dried and smoked, they can last for a long time and can be used to supplement your, your economy in the winter months as well. When did the Mi'kmaq first settle in this area and what changes, if any, took place over time? So we know with with very uh, precise data when they first started occupying the harbor. Um, prior to about 3,000 years ago, the, uh, Port Jolie wasn't a harbor at all. It was just a low river valley. But as sea levels rose, uh, 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 it, it formed a harbor, a shallow harbor. And right about the time that extensive foreshore clam flats developed because of the rise of sea levels, that's when the Mi'kmaq occupied the harbor. And those sites date to uh, precisely 1,500 years ago. And the most intensive sites, the biggest sites, occur at that time. Uh, So as soon as clams became available, that's when the Mi'kmaq occupied the harbor and they stayed there for 1,500 years. Um, uh, The the largest sites are related to these big clam fats 1,500 years ago and they're really deep middens over a meter deep. Um, But as the 
sea level rose, the harbor filled in with water and people started moving towards the head of the harbor and the clam flats became less productive. So they're still relying on clams, but they had to change their economy slightly. And the way they did that was focusing more on terrestrial mammals, um, primarily caribou and deer. So over time, there's less clams being taken. Uh, the middens become smaller and, and contain a lot less shell. Uh, and people sort of change their economy towards the terrestrial resources, but they're still taking a, a vast number of clams and, and uh, fish as well. Um, but we think uh, because Port Jolly became a special place, they decided to stay and not move to these other more productive clam uh, flats in other harbors. But they stayed in Port Jolly because it became a, a, a place that became so special uh, that they continued to aggregate there every summer uh, in this special spot. What happened to the Mi'kmaq of this region when the Europeans arrived? Well, we know that in Port Jolie they stayed uh, for quite a few centuries uh, after the arrival of Europeans. And so we have good evidence that they stayed and continued to do the things that they were doing prior to the arrival of Europeans until probably about the 1700s. Uh, and, and then they were just sort of supplanted by, uh, by European uh, uh, land ownership protocols. Um, what's really interesting is that um, when, when Europeans were sort of given the land in Port Jolly, they tried to farm it, but it, it, the soil so rocky and acidic, they've had a very difficult job with it. And so they, they tried this for about a century or so. Many of them turned to fishing. And then around the early 1800s, Europeans had to abandon the place. It was just not a productive location for them to farm. And then the Mi'kmaq came back. And so we have a census from the early 1800s that show there are more Mi'kmaq again in Port Jolly after Europeans abandoned, abandoned it. And then um, uh, that switches again, and then Europeans uh, come and, and um, start living in Port Jolly again. So they, the Mi'kmaq tried to stay there as long as they could, uh, but the pressures from European settlement were just too much in the end. I note you've worked closely with the Acadia First Nation, the group of people that now live in this area, and that, in fact, your work has been done in partnerships with the members of this First Nation. Can you tell us more about this arrangement? Absolutely. And uh, from the very beginning, uh, Acadia First Nation has been a collaborator on the project. Um, they were very interested in their history there. It was a place that they remembered the name of, but a place that they didn't have many oral histories about. And the way of life there was largely forgotten by uh, the, the Mi'kmaq of Acadia First Nation. And so together, we explored this culture history and learned about it uh, at the same time. Um, and we, we had tours for elders and we talked with elders. We, we had a, a a learning experience for youth, a, a field school to teach archaeological techniques to high school students. Um, and uh, the result was many lectures, uh, lots of sharing of knowledge, and then this book, which is was, which is not just an archaeological uh, uh, treatise, it's also meant for the community. And so if you've read through it, the introductory chapter and the last chapter are written in a more uh, accessible language for, so that the community can access the information that they need. They have a very uh, rich oral history, uh, and so it, they, there are many things that they uh, can tell us that archaeology can't tell us. But uh, the Mi'kmaq have also had the longest duration of European uh, impact uh, almost anywhere in North America. And... Um, so a lot of information has been lost because of the, the pressures of colonialism and uh, um, infectious disease and, and the, the loss of population. And so one of the things that they're really interested in is what their ancestors were doing on the coast and how they were interacting with the coastal resources. And so one of the ways we could look for that is through archaeology and the th things we discovered um, really new. Um, and so 
because we were exploring Indigenous history, Acadia First Nation had to be a close partner and everything that we learned had to be shared with them uh, because it's their history that we're, we're digging up. And, and right from the ground up, it was designed to be a collaborative project. And really, the collaboration is still ongoing. We're still sharing information with them and we're still developing new projects with them. Well, I was quite taken with that beautiful photograph of a painting that had been done just uh, very recently by a member of the Acadia First Nation that you included in your book that basically describes in some sense the cosmology of the Acadia First Nation. Yeah, and that was one of the more rewarding results of the project. There are so many uh, moments, but that is based on a specific artifact that we found uh, that uh, really um, the the process about the artifact was involved was known by oral history, but the artifact itself wasn't. And so we found evidence of this our artifact and this and this unique uh, relationship that it had with with women uh, in the community really latched onto this story um, and, and to such an extent that it, it started to become incorporated into their artwork. And so the the art that you see in the, that chapter, that last sort of painting uh, by Melissa Labrador, is really a result of the information we learned from the archaeology then being incorporated into uh, their own knowledge about their past and being reinterpreted. And so the, that's a woman carrying a spark holder, um, a, a special artifact that we found there that we didn't find anywhere else. Um, and um, she's reinterpreting uh, and sort of making that history her own through that artwork. What are some of the more unique artifacts that you found at the Port Jolie site? So in these big shell middens, um, these big meter deep shell middens, we found an artifact that we didn't know its function. Uh, it was a clam shell, soft shell clam valve uh, lined with clay. Um, and um, these had never been found in shell middens before anywhere in the Maritime Peninsula, anywhere in the Maritimes. Uh, and we found five of them. And for the longest time, we didn't know what they were. We talked to the elders. We asked them what it could be related to. And they said, well, there was charcoal nearby. Maybe it has something to do with, with lighting fires. And so we we started looking through the ethnographic literature relating to that and discovered one small description in a, a very old ethnographic, ethnohistoric account um, about women making fire and bringing that, preserving that fire while they moved it from winter sites to summer sites. And so the way they did this was to put a spark in a clay lined clamshell with a piece of punk, which is actually a chaga. It's a, it's a type of uh, fungus that grows on a tree. Uh, and then they would close the clamshell up and wrap that in a marmot skin and use the, that, uh, keep that spark going from their winter sites to their summer sites. Um, that's also associated with ritual related to women. Uh, women were the, were the keepers of the flame in Mi'kmaq society. And if a woman could keep a fire going from the winter sites to the summer sites, and especially if she could keep it going for 30 days, uh, she was revered and considered to be special amongst all women and they would have a giant feast uh, to revere the, they would, then they, during that feast they would inhale the smoke from the fires and blow it into her face as a sign of respect um, and so here we have a demonstrable linkage between the artifact associated with that ritual and these shell middens uh, and the women who were doing the work at these shell middens and so um, not only did the processing involve multiple families coming together to to do the labor, but multiple families coming together to share ritual and share feasting uh, and really changed our idea about how this landscape was used by men and women. You call this book a site monograph. Now, I understand based on what you've said that this is a very rare breed and has largely disappeared in the past generation. Why is this so? And why do you feel so strongly about reviving the site monograph? 
I'm really glad that you picked up on that in the in the book. And um, uh, prior to about 19, the 1980s, uh, archaeologists used to write site monographs all the time. It was a way that we shared our data uh, and b- brought the primary data that we excavated out to uh, the archaeological audience and to the public. Um, with the advent of sort of the of newer archaeologies and, and theoretical archaeologies, uh, things have changed. People focus more on theoretical papers and individual uh, interpretations of specific artifact sets, and they're not writing these big monographs. And so what happens is all the data that used to be put into these monographs, uh, the artifact plates, the tables, the, the raw data that people need to interpret the past is starting to become locked up in field notes and archives and not really disseminated in ways that people can digest it and understand it. Um, and this is devastating not only for archaeologists, but for communities who need the data to build their own histories. And so I felt very strongly that a project like this needed to result in a large compilation of data interpreted in a general way at the at the end of the the data presentation so that other people can sort of make sense of it and use that data in their own uh, research and in their own histories and so that's what this is i revived this uh, site monograph concept in this book um, and you'll see that all the chapters that we've written and i've co-written with others uh, provide all of this data you know in a way that's um uh, almost obsessive, uh, and uh, we hope that this will help revive uh, mother, another archaeologist's uh, this approach. Uh, I really do feel that it's the first best destiny of archaeologists. Um, these are the things that people will cite 50 years from now, um, not the theoretical papers you write that are flashes in the pan that 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 really are are pandering to to modern theoretical trends that last only a few years. But the Mercury series has a long-standing history um, at the at the uh, Canadian Museum of History, um, uh, previously the Canadian Museum of Civilization. Um, the Mercury series started as a monograph series for archaeology. It's it started um, to produce this data, uh, and then subsequently switched to to dissertations and compilations and and, and other sort of forms. Um, but I I made an appeal to the editor that this is uh, the type of thing I think the Mercury series should be publishing, um, uh, especially as a museum series which is involved uh, primarily in developing a legacy, an archaeological legacy for for other generations to read and have access to data, especially what the data that's produced by the Canadian Museum of History and the editor agreed um, and they were very generous in the um the, the amount of uh, images we were allowed to produce all in full color uh, and even there's an offline link or online link to the data that you can you can access and download the actual tables of data, the raw data if you want to uh, look at the artifact frequencies and those sorts of things. It was really a wonderful collaboration. This may be a book about archaeology but I could not help but notice your very extensive bibliography at the end. Included in this were three books published by the Champlain Society on the history of New France, a history of the Mi'kmaq on the Gaspé Peninsula, and a natural history of the coastal regions of North America. So what is the relationship between these documentary histories and archaeology? Well, uh, you're describing the works by Denny Celeste Carbeau and Leclerc, and uh, two of them are explorers, one's a missionary. But these are individuals who actually met the Mi'kmaq living a traditional lifestyles, and they wrote this down in their histories and natural histories of these locations. And so uh, these provide a window into Mi'kmaq behavior, um, not only just their interaction with the animals and their hunting techniques, but their spirituality uh, and, and even their belief systems. 
And so we use these data, this primary data in these wonderful compilations that you guys have published um, uh, as, a, as a window into the past to help us interpret, inter, interpret the archaeological material that we're excavating. It's absolutely crucial, these early ethnohistoric accounts, um, and they really provide a, a great model for us to sort of riff off the archaeological material. Uh, and without it, for example, I would not have been able to um, interpret what these clay-lined clamshells were used for and, and in even other things. Um, we found a sweat lodge and there was information about the sweat, lodge, uh, sweat lodges uh, included in these uh, publications that the Champlain Society has done. Uh, so they're absolutely critical for archaeology and they sit on my desk and I use them almost every day. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and I do hope that we'll have further opportunities to discuss uh, various works done by uh, members, other members of the Kane Museum of History, whether as archaeologists or as historians. So we really appreciate you joining us today. Well, thank you very much. It was a wonderful interview, and I'm so happy to have been able to talk about my work there. My guest today was Matt Betts. He is the editor and main author of Placemaking in the Pretty Harbor, The Archaeology of Port Jolie, Nova Scotia, published by the University of Ottawa Press in 2019 as part of its Mercury series. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. If you've liked what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on September 11, 2020, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was produced by the wonderful Jessica Schmidt.